Hi, this is Peter Greif, and welcome to episode three of Off the Fence, our bi-weekly podcast in which we look at a series of issues. We have with us here Luis Aranzana from Madrid, Alexandra Fuchs, who's in Connecticut, and Peter Greif. I'm in East Hampton, New York this time or around. As we finished up the discussion last week about prospects and markets in, and how to deal with a bear market, one of the remarks I made was that my biggest concern is the future of politics and especially political, not in terms of one party or another, but are we going to continue to be ruled the way we've been, are we going to be, continue to be governed the way we've been governed for the past decades or generations, or are we heading into some new unknown model that, uh, that will potentially be worse than what we have today or better? And so really wanted to take a look at this and some of the factors that are driving change, if you think change is coming, that includes technology, I think in hardening views in public opinion that are also related to technology. It includes how the great financial crisis of 2008 and onwards was managed, the aftermath of that, COVID, many factors are at work here. But I really wanted to put out the notion that in my lifetime, which we've never really had to question what the United States, and for that matter, what the, what the in Western Europe, what our model for governance was. It's been some form of representative democracy. And if you want to call it a parliamentary democracy or republicanism or whatever form it takes, it's based on the premise that people should vote all votes are equal, governments will change, the people who lose the election will accept that they lost the election. And this it really leads to, is based on rule of law. It leads to dispersion of power, which can sometimes be vexatious, but also means there's not a concentration of power. And so far has worked better than any other system that's been tried for all the problems that it entails. And for the first time in, in decades, this system is being questioned in a way that it hasn't been questioned since the Cold War. So I really wanted to put that view out there and see where my colleagues here, Luis and Alex, see this going in the next decade, the next two decades, and also whether it matters in economic terms, in terms of social well-being, and in terms of our development as a society. Luis, you want to take that one? Thank you, Peter. I, for the record, I'm in the southwest of France today, not in Madrid. It's just starting my summer vacation, which is a very European thing to do this time of the year. I share some of your concerns. I also think I see things perhaps a little bit different in the sense that I think that for many years, there was a, a very difficult process of differentiation between political parties in countries that had a tradition of bipartisan alternation in government. And probably up until the end of the Cold War, there was a consensus on a number of important policies, especially in foreign policy. And there were some differences in domestic policy, in particular social issues and individual rights issues. This is, I think, possibly one of the things that is changing today is that up until the recent crisis, there was no common purpose in foreign policy because, you know, to, to a large extent, and one could argue that maybe the U.S. military incursions into Iraq and Afghanistan were 
for the most part, bipartisan in, in, the, in the root cause of it, but perhaps not in the way to handle the two military actions. And I think that for what happened is that in an effort to differentiate political parties, we have potentially damaged the political process, but hope in ways that Peter just described, that because you had to, the more or less small percentage of, the, of your electorate that was going to be driven by more extreme points of view on, on, on issues, political parties have become dominated in, to a large extent by extremism, like we haven't seen in potentially since the 1920s and 30s. And I share with you some concerns that this is dangerous, but I also think that we still have an opportunity to see a move towards a more, to a move towards recovering the center as the important part of the electorate as we probably have a more consensual views on, on other on non-domestic policies, precisely because of the recent confrontation with China and Russia. The confrontation with China has been mostly commercial, but with some political undertones, especially around the issue of China's expansion in the South Sea and, in, and its determined intent to recover Taiwan, which the Chinese leadership considers an integral part of the country and also with Russia. And perhaps counterintuitively, this foreign tension may result in a, in a much more cohesive domestic policy. Maybe this is my wishful thinking as a middle-aged person, but perhaps we are very lucky and this is the result of the current uh, geopolitical tension. Alex? So I, I would say I have similar views, but I reduce them thusly. I think that governments really only have a role in the long term of managing elements of society and elements of the economy, which are happening beyond their reach or beyond their active capability to influence. So, and the institutions and the general way in which they get, people get elected and then uh, get into power and then exert that power, but that systems that allow for a change in equilibrium position, which is more fluid, in my mind, work better long-term. So what does that mean? In the case of the United States, I find, having lived here for many years and coming from, again, a European background, that you have a lot of nonsense, you have massive overshooting on both sides, you have a federal system where you have 50 states that try different things with different results. And therefore, I find that structurally, you find more nonsense to complain about or notice. But ultimately, what happens is that the system adjusts every two years, every four years, every six years in a way that kind of follows the pattern of whatever the underlying societal change is and whatever the underlying economic change is. And what I find that in Europe as a, and worldwide, and this is also true about Asia, is that you can skip ahead and you can, in a dirigiste, in a technocratic way, engineer better solution than what this chaotic random walk will generate in the US, you can generate a better outcome in certain other societies. 
the beginning of the transformation of China and the infrastructure investment and all of the capital and human development that existed in China for quite a long time can overperform for a while, but ultimately gets marred in the inability of the system to address the new equilibriums. And what I see as the major change over the next 10, 20, 30 years is the impact that certain technologies and certain changes are going to have on a massive amount of dutifully employed careerist people, whether in middle management, whether in last mile logistics, whether in materials processing is going to have. And I find that the U.S., while being really messy and really just full of things that you would really would think would never stand the test of ridicule, ultimately react. I, I think we may talk about the rule versus way. I don't see that as a symptom, if you want, of regression, given the fact that it seems that more than 80% of people would be in favor of a woman's rights to choose. I see that as the normal, natural evolution of a chaotic system that will eventually, in some way, go out and correct itself through mean and reversion or, or other mechanisms. I don't see that in Europe, and that is what worries me. And I certainly don't see that in other more controlled societies, take China and some of the others. I think, and thank you for that, both of you. I think to some extent, what you described, Alex, is absolutely true and recognizable. At the same time, it seems to represent normalizing the what is not normal, normalizing the exceptional, the extraordinary things that have been happening in the past few years in the United States, but also in Europe. And I'm thinking in, in, in the US in terms of what the Trump presidency was, the January 6th insurrection, the Brexit, which is a type of national self-harm, which is gonna take years to get over. And I think it makes sense what Luis said, these certainly differentiate and get differentiate political parties and get, that, get us out of a consensus, get us beyond a consensus, but the consensus was to some extent working imperfectly, but it provided us with a with a more certain future. It was grounded in rule of law. It had very well-defined guardrails, and those guardrails in many ways are off these days and still coming off. Or if, depending on how things go in, in a few hotspots around the world, maybe they're not coming off. But I've never seen a time of uncertainty where we're questioning, again, I'll get to it the way we're being governed. And it's worrisome. I'm not sure if either of you saw an article by Jonathan Haidt in the Atlantic magazine about in April, I think it came out. The title was why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. It's not just a phase. And he he talked about the multiplier effect of social media and really dated this change to the introduction of the iPhone, the smartphone, the introduction of the dopamine endorphin induced highs of getting messages getting liked, commenting, forwarding, the things we do on social media, which coincided with the great financial crisis. And and a lot of what what came after that in, in political terms, including having the first black president in the United States. It seems to have unleashed something. And Alex, you were talking about this a little bit earlier, that this is all new to us. We've only been at it for, well, 10 or 12 years now. In so with social media, I and my concern is it is it has left us in a place that we no longer have the same type of moorings, we no longer have a unified or consensus view even of reality that we used to have in certainly in the United States, and it's one of the big differences I notice between the U.S. and the European country I live in, Spain, but also the U.K. Yeah. In the U.K. in Spain, 
when you wake up in the morning, you read the newspapers and you see a recognizable version of reality that's reflected pretty universally. Whereas in the US, you go to the media and you're seeing two different realities on from right-wing media to what's called mainstream media. And they don't, they're not telling the same story at all, which to me is a really scary place for a country to be. Alex? I think, as you said, that we're early in the experiment of social media and we're looking at the impact that technology is having on our behavior. And I think what happened was before you had a chain of custody for information. You had information generated wherever it was, transported by few select vehicles, such as the major networks and the papers and so on and so forth, through very selected means. And therefore, there was this kind of mechanism through ridicule and through fact-checking or other things that made it that this content was fairly solid and journalistic integrity at the time was something which was much more easy to define because, for example, in France, you would get a press card. That press card meant that you had a role in shaping a certain message that was meant to be as close, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. to reality, right? Social media has distorted all this because, to be fair, uh, Rupert Murdoch for years and tabloid journalism and many things were a proper antecedent to this. But social media just exploded the trend to make it essentially peer-to-peer. What you have is that now, as a listener, as a consumer of content, you are now fully responsible. And so if you neglect this responsibility, if you neglect to drive the car properly on the road, you're going to crash. And so these rules of etiquette or logic or not listening to certain particular extreme voices that reinforce simply your desire to feel a certain way are very destructive, and I would agree. What I find absolutely fascinating is that people will get down the rabbit hole of conspiracies and believe the nonsensical things that these, I would say, extreme points of view may provide. But when it comes to doing business... When it comes to enforcing contracts, when it comes to dealing in a professional way from professional entity to professional entity, I find none of that to be really material. Sure, people go out and make acquisitions for idiotic numbers in in certain extreme cases, but general business is still conducted very much on due diligence, facts, logic, return on investment, and in a way which is much colder. And so you have this dichotomy in the US, which to me, I find more fearful in Europe because I see a lot of structural deals getting done, or historically has been the case, where for either political reasons, for full employment reasons, for governmental acquiescence reasons, businesses transacted a certain particular way with, again, the state representing just a massive amount of GDP, which in the US, yes, you see this nonsense on the personal side and on the content side, but I don't see it on the business side. And I find that interesting. Yeah, it's certainly a phenomenon I've noticed and, and surprises me. I would have expected rule of law to take a bigger beating after four years of a Trump presidency. And I read a quote this morning by Jacques Attali, the the investment banker who became head of the the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And Attali said, where is it? Globalization of markets without the globalization of rule of law and globalization of democracy simply means a global rule of the jungle, global law of the jungle. And an interesting concept. He sees these as going together. Rule of law, openness, democracy. I think that there was a big moment in in business that took place maybe in 2010, 
2021 or 2020, where the conference board redefined the purpose of a corporation. And then I think it does not necessarily mean that the way that companies are run is has changed in practice as much as the message would suggest, but it does mean that it is the common approach now to, to corporate to, to what the purpose of a corporation is in the United States. It's very different from the way that I grew up with, where Alex and you grew up with, which which was where the profit motive, the total shareholder return, maximizing shareholders' value were the, the, were the key drivers of boards and management. And now corporations in the United States, as they have in other jurisdictions for many years, have multiple purposes, which sometimes are at cross purposes to each other. So that, that is, is maybe not exactly what happens on a day-to-day basis, but it is certainly the backdrop for, for what the corporate governance should be has changed because it should incorporate many other interests that in a much more proactive way, if one were to believe that this is the fu- how the future will take shape. It certainly, since COVID, governments around the world have taken advantage of the situation to interfere with markets and business, the Congress of the United States is passing what what many years ago people would have called the corporate welfare package for the semiconductor industry. There's a lot of, every country has taken advantage of disruption to come back to the idea that one needs to manufacture everything at home. None of these things make any sense from a capital allocation point of view or from efficiencies that are gained by just following comparative advantage methodologies that have worked fairly well for a lot of for a lot of the past 30 years. But here's where we are. We have a very, I think we have changes in, in, in the political landscape, as you mentioned, which veer towards, I think, a more decentralized way of generating important opinions than before. And I agree with your vision, but, I, but not fully, because I think that this fragmentation of forming images of what reality is also true in Europe. You have uh, you don't have the networks on television, although in France, Monsieur Bolloré is going is financing uh, Fox News France, and I think eventually, in the bigger markets in Europe, people will finance a counterpoint to the generally very liberal media on TV as well as in the as in most of the written press on the radio in Europe, which was also the precursor of what happened on television later in the United States. I think ra- radio preceded television, we already have that in all of Europe. We have ultra right-wing and left-wing radio and small-scale TV platforms. The What is reality? And you mentioned a consensus, and I think you throw us back to a time where you had, the, you had re- reality delivered to your living room every evening by Walter Conkright or maybe yeah. Dan Rather later, or whomever you chose to be. The spokesperson for that, but as we know now, some of what we, some of that was also grossly different from reality. And so it was just another messaging and another agenda. It is very difficult to know what's going on. And at the end of the day, I think that the vast majority of citizens don't really crave for that. They crave for reassurance. They don't crave for the facts. Different groups will give them reassurance on what they believe is happening. And that is the danger because eventually people might be convinced that the, the, the enemy with a capital E, the other in sociology or in anthropology is their neighbor. And we're not probably 
very far from that in the United States, from what you described and from what you sent on the articles that, that we have discussed. But I think we're not very far from that in Europe. And I was discussing yesterday with a colleague of mine, if you wanted to create a European identity, what would be, what would children need to learn at school? What would be the common thread? There's not a lot. There's no language. There's no common history. There's no common, there is a common religion in the general sense that Christianity is the religion of most Europeans, but the Christianity that is divided in three big camps that are that have been in counterposition to each other for centuries. There is very little in common between a Bulgarian and a Portuguese person, and they can't understand each other on many levels. So I would agree with Alex that whatever happens in the United States may, may, may be easier to resolve than what's happening in Europe. We already lost the United Kingdom to the European project, and I think it is self-defeating, but also a major blow to the European project. So it's a lose-lose situation. It's not, there's no winner here. It's a horrible situation for both camps. We will soon, we may soon be losing other countries, Hungary, perhaps even Poland, even though Poland has benefited from its European Union membership economically in a very significant way. It's a much more conservative society than the average of Europe. And that conservatism has been stirred by smart politicians to create that divide. And the same can be said for the Czech Republic. Other countries in Europe are failed states, such as Bulgaria, for instance. And we, it's a member of the European Union, and it has made economic progress since it joined, but it's not, there's no rule of law there, at least not apparently. It's not, they don't even provide data to Eurostat, as a result of which they don't receive all the European funds they are entitled to because of their level of development, and nobody seems to do anything about it in that country. So, I, I, am, I have some concerns that I share with you and with Alex, but I'm more concerned perhaps about what's going on in Europe than what's going on in the United States. I'm also more concerned about what's going on in China than what's going on in, 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 the, in, in the Ukraine in the sense that we were able to cancel Russia with at a, an economic cost that for now seems to be affordable to the West. If China were to be canceled, I don't think we could afford the economic cost of that. It would be the Easter Island moment for Western civilization. Maybe Easter Island is not the good analogy, but it would be it would be the it would be a very expensive political position to take. And I don't think we can afford it. And finally I would say that because the best thing that can happen from a government perspective today with low record low unemployment rates, not only in the United States, but also in Europe, which is something that people discuss very seldom, is to continue with this inflationary spiral where eventually wages will catch up, maybe not in real terms, but at least will grow in nominal terms. And since a lot of people have fixed rate debts, everybody will feel much better off. And that is another problem, which is political and has ramifications that, that, will, that will also be very costly. And it's the big temptation, and governments have jumped for it, and central banks have been unable to do anything about it. And I think we, we may have, in the fall, a significant amount 
of industrial action or strikes in from government workers to retired people to union labor to perhaps even non-union employees around the issue of wages not growing fast enough. And, and that's another political complication. So I'm certainly sure a lot of your concerns, I'm not, but I think that the of the three areas that we mentioned, China, the European Union, and the United States is by far best prepared to face the challenges ahead. Yeah. So maybe I, it's I, the tallest, maybe it's the tallest midget, but it is <laughs> taller by by a mile. I'd love to address just a few quick points. The first one I think is on China. I think I'm on the other side on that one with you. China is a perfect example of disequilibrium, that there is both strategy and government policy, which is trying to achieve certain particular goals, but that's pretty much everything else is working against it, including COVID, including certainly the bank runs, the population suppression, the lockdowns. And all of this shows you, I think, a nation which is in structural disequilibrium right now. And I think from a long-term positioning, the worst thing that could happen is, I think I agree with you on that one, would be to have a conflict with them. And I agree that it probably would be enormously costly and practically impossible to survive in terms of supply chains all across the world. And for most of the companies that we invest in, but I also think that time is on the side of the Western model. I think that the situation is untenable. I think at some particular point, there has to be a rationalization. And it could go the way of Russia and Ukraine, where in the end game, the state decides to do something to distract attention or to make a bold move, hoping to reshuffle the cards, which would imply Taiwan. And this is the reason for the chips bill, many of the other actions which are trying to protect against this long term. To your point on governance and the corporation, I think that you can expand that to Larry Fink's work and others on ESG, and that's trying to redefine what people should invest in historically does not work. And I think ultimately you'll find that out, and you're seeing that in Europe now, where obviously ESG concerns are no longer important this year when it comes to investing in energy infrastructure. And the final point I made to you is that stocks are denominated in nominal terms, not in real terms. So inflation for companies who have products that people want is irrelevant, I think. It may hurt the consumer. But when you look at the impact of technology over the next 10, 20 years, you're looking at a government which has been able to erode its nominal debt, probably the biggest chunk out of the value of the national debt of the United States has happened in the last 18 months amazingly, it's going to be very difficult for people to argue for higher wages long-term in the face of just radical technology change. I'll leave it at that, but I really don't think that wages are going to get a chance to catch up in, in lower skilled. And certainly in Europe will have more of an impact given that it's a more contentious market. There's a lot to unlock here. The EU's ability to manage in the uncertainty that, that we're facing, the xenophobia or whether or not the U.S. and China can avoid the Thucydides trap as it was once described. Yes. And in spite of that analysis, they seem determined to, to fall into it. And what's happening with the, in, a, in, a, in a moment where government fiscal policy and central bank monetary policy are not aligned. One is driving inflation, the other's battling it. And, uh, and where, will that leave, where will that leave us in a few, in, in really to be decided in the, in the next few months. But we've got to go now, but thanks for that. It gives us a lot to look at next time and I look forward to it. So thanks very much, Alex, Luis. Be well, safe return. Okay, take care. <laughs>